Women Bridging the Gap is a freewheeling conversation podcast co-hosted by myself, Lenya Wilson, a black woman, and Alexandra Titalia, a white woman. When Michelle Obama started her podcast and the internet went crazy because Michelle Obama admitted she was suffering from a low-grade depression. And she really talked about it as being caused by the pandemic and caused by the racial strife and all the polarization in our communities. And then there were so many articles and CNN has a really good one about how black women really needed to hear Michelle Obama say that. And so I emailed you and said, let's talk about this. And then really we started talking about the wellness community because very quickly that's where it's so very white. Yes. And the whole decolonization of the wellness industry movement, which started a little while ago, but I guess hasn't turned into mainstream until now. Tell me what decolonization, because I understand what it means from a historical point of view and what it might mean even as a political or value point of view, but what does it mean to decolonize an industry? The the colonization is like a two thing process, right? So first you have these white people that are going in and using Eastern medicine and remarketing it as their own and then promoting it only within the white skinny female community. So they are misappropriating a whole other culture and then promoting it to just their own community. Are only promoting it to just their community or just that's because whether it's dictated by real estate, dictated by audience, dictated by who you're going to put in the advertisement, that it just becomes only promoted. My sense is, is that it isn't intentionally trying to exclude. I just think the result is it includes. It, well, I, I think it's intentional. I think a lot of white women just don't see the world beyond themselves. And that's intentional when you don't see the world beyond yourself and you have your, or your company, your yoga studio, whatever, and you can't see that there is a whole diverse community out there. And, and that not being able to visualize outside of yourself is intentional. I see that. I understand that. I think the issue is a little bit broader. And I think, again, it comes a little, when I think of this, it really does come towards capitalizing or or the sense of capitalism, because I even just think about meditation and now we have the mindfulness movement. And obviously meditation has a lot of Eastern significance. It has religious and spiritual significance. And yet we've made it a part of business. And so to be mindful, and I can't tell you, even at law schools now, there are mindfulness classes that that you can take. And so it's completely, and I'll be honest, taught by white people and taught by people without necessarily the spiritual training. It's really just the facilitation training. But here's, I guess, my question. If it still helps somebody, even if it's been completely appropriated and completely, let's call it whitewashed, if it still helps any human be calmer, be more focused, 
be a better human being? Does it matter? I have mixed feelings on this. Tell me, because I'm sure you're not the only one. So, you know, that the whole uh, meditation thing I, I, I got from our mindfulness challenge that we did together. And I really took to it. It, it does help me sleep. I, I downloaded the Calm app and it does help so, me sleep. So everybody, if you, we did the Deepak Chopra's abundance meditation training. And so it was 21 days yes. of meditation and really learning about the concept of an abundance mindset versus a scarcity mindset. And so from there, if you want to continue, both of us use the Calm app. I use it for meditation. I use it for uh, sleeping. Sometimes I use it for the bedtime stories. It's a useful app, I find, to get control of your technology, to make sure you're using it to sleep in a more effective way. Yeah. But so you were introduced there. So I do it and it does make me feel better. I, I was listening to LeBron James, uh, his meditations on becoming a better athlete. And, you know, that really resonated with me. And I'm trying to become a better athlete. So part of his, his training per, um, is meditation and making sure he takes these two hour naps every day. And, and he uses the calm app sleep meditations. And I started doing it. It has really helped. I get the importance of it. I just wish that it, that the whole movement was more inclusive because it puts people offside to think that something is not branded or marketed to them. And Getting back to Michelle Obama and the anxiety and depression in the black community, there's a whole episode on blackish where the one of the characters is having depression and the mother says, you just need black Jesus. The black community has a stigma around depression and how it's a white person's problem. So they don't see going to therapy as something that's important. And so it is in the last, I don't know, few years that you see a lot of black celebrities trying to normalize this in the black community so that black women and, you know, black people in general, but black women, especially get the therapy and help that they need. There's all these movements, Rachel Cargill's Loveland Foundation. There's a, a website called Therapy for Black Girls, and they also have a fantastic podcast. There is this movement to try to get rid of the stigma, especially now with the pandemic, with the systemic racism. Not that it hasn't been going on forever. It's been going on forever, but it is so in our faces. How many times did you see the George Floyd tape? Nine minutes on any social media, right. in the news, everywhere. It was just everywhere. And it's hard for Black people to constantly see Black people's bodies looted and murdered in their faces all, all the time. So it does take a mental toll. And then the pandemic with Black and people of color and, and Indigenous people being disproportionately affected, it's just so difficult every day to have that weighing on you. And so I do hope that Michelle Obama coming forward like this does help normalize this so more Black women can seek the help that they need. Because like I said, it's just not something that's normal, quote unquote, in the Black community. So it's interesting that you say that the Black community at some point said that these are just white people problems. problems. So isn't there something also analogous to that in thinking that 
therapy and wellness, it's first world problems or upper middle class problems or rich people problems. Because what's interesting is my grandparents would have certainly said that depression, anxiety, going to a therapist, like who the fuck has time or money to do any of those things. Like you have to work, you have to put food on the table. You need to raise your children. You need to go to church and who has time. I feel like that life was simpler in those times and not that they didn't have to deal with the stresses of life, but we have to deal with those stresses that they dealt with as well as all these additional new things with like social media, this constant having access to your work emails and my husband now working from home can, can, if he wanted to work 24 hours with the way people contact him. And I'm just saying there's more, there's just more stress. And so I understand where it's like my mother would not have felt like that, but my grandmother for sure would have been like, you need black Jesus because there's no reason to be as stressed because they didn't have the stresses that we had. I still think though, what some of the pushback that the black community might push back and say, come on, like, this isn't this, who has time for this? And there is that sense of there is, I still think it exists. The thing is, I do think that depression and anxiety existed in our grandparents' time. I don't think it was recognized as such. And it was just considered, it might've been just considered normal, or it was so stigmatized that you just buried it deep and you just had to say, I'm strong. So it gets me to that point is that when we think of when we talked in the microaggression episode, we talked a little bit about how when like a white person says to a black woman, oh, you're so strong that it's playing into a stereotype and that without context, it actually is going to be received as a microaggression and not really heard as a compliment. And so in that sense, Is there something going on internally is that we want to be seen as really strong and yet saying that you're depressed or you suffer from anxiety or that you need help or or need a community to help you through something is that is cutting against that concept of strength, which we're built upon generally. But I think white women are allowed to be more fragile than black women just in general. I think you're allowed to, yeah, you're allowed to have uh, feelings that of vulnerability that black women are just not allowed to have. I think that white women are also given permission, especially upper middle class women to have a team in a sense that, and I think it's very, I, I love the generation coming up because I do think more people think, no, of course I have a team. I have a coach for this. I have a coach for that. I have a therapist. I have this, I have an app for this. I, I love the next generation saying it's okay to, to get help yeah. but for our generation and the older generation for baby boomers. I, I do think it's a little bit tougher but I do think like I grew up saying, of course, I would need a therapist to help me through periods of time in my life. Part of that is that I went to a therapist, I think, for the first time at six because I didn't get along with my dad. And so they're like, well, you're not getting along with your father. So we're going to send you to a child psychologist <laughs> to figure out why you have such a big mouth. And I remember going to Dr. Ehrlich. I would go to her office. I would love playing with her little toys. I have no idea what I told her. 
What's amazing though, is that it did set up a place for me to be okay. You Mm -hmm. know, I saw a therapist in college when my parents split. Then when I was leaving the law, I found a therapist that still, even when my mother died just three years ago, she no longer is a practicing therapist. I think she now just is a guidance counselor, like working in school systems. Mm -hmm. But I called her and she's like, oh, I'll I'll do a few sessions with you because she knew all the players and I knew I needed help. And, And that's been phenomenal for me to know that I could reach out. She guided me through my first depression that I got when I was 38 and my first clinical depression, because I do think we're, you, we're throwing around a lot of words here that yes. have clinical meanings and also have lay person meanings where being low grade depression, I don't think that probably has clinical significance, or maybe Michelle Obama was hedging on that on purpose, because I do think we can all talk about general anxiety, general depression, and then there's anxiety disorder and clinical depression, which you really do need the help of a doctor and you definitely need for the help of a therapist. And you might even need, because there are chemical imbalances in the brain, it is where medicine can help. And I had a clinical depression at 38 where I did need the help of Prozac to, I think I took Prozac for about four years working with the therapist to just be able to function normally in the world. I also find though that I reach out for a therapist because I don't have a, I don't necessarily have a community. So when you say find black Jesus, I want to actually ask you more about that because I don't have a church. I don't have a spiritual place to go once a week. So it really did feel at my best, like going to therapy was like going to church because it was me being able to sit and see myself in the larger scheme of things. And, and And it just, I felt fed and seen for that hour a week that I would go. So is that what you mean by black Jesus? You need to go to church or what? Girl, I have no idea who black Jesus is. Okay. Well, black Jesus is the actual Jesus, but. (laughs) But I'm just saying when they, you know, these references to black, I love uh, Jennifer Lewis's reference to black Jesus on blackish. That just is to me, hilarious her and Anthony Anderson. This is a running joke. Oh, black Jesus. But they're just talking about religion in general. And the African-American community is very religious, but that doesn't mean you don't need therapy. Taraji P. Henderson, who is an extremely religious actress, talks about needing therapy all the time. Like she has had to deal with whatever her problems are and she needed to go to therapy. Having religion is wonderful, but she still needed that. And we need to understand that sometimes religion is great. Having faith is great, but it is not going to help you if you are clinically depressed or if you have a chemical imbalance. It's not going to help you if you're so sick that you need medical attention. Right. It might not actually even help you during the pandemic where you're not feeling safe going to church or your or churches aren't open. My sense is that what I like about any kind of therapy or any kind of personal development experience. So maybe it is meditation, but something where you're working on you, you know, mm-hmm. and your behavior is that in public spaces, you're still navigating perception 
-hmm. how you want to be seen. And for me, even with my closest friends who I feel like I could say anything to, of course, I mean, Lenya, you and I have talked about so much and I could call you with anything, but sometimes it's safest just to be in a place with somebody who is sworn to be confidential and it's completely a shame-free atmosphere. If the therapist is doing his or her or they's job, it's a completely free atmosphere. And I still think there's a lot of shame around having depression or anxiety. And I think depression more so because what's yeah. interesting about my younger students in their 20s is that... They all have anxiety. Well, not only that, regardless of... It definitely skews more white people than the people of color, but generally all of my students under the age of 30 will talk openly about their anxiety, talk openly about their focus issues. They will talk openly about their team. They will talk openly, sometimes a little too openly, I think, about the medicine that they're on. (laughs) Um, Because I'll have a student come in and say, oh, I was just with my doctor. He's adjusting my meds. I'm like, diabetes? No, no, my anxiety meds. I'm like, it's a lot of information to tell us to a professor. But I admire it because that means there's no stigma. Yes. What I don't hear students talking about as much is depression. And so I still feel like depression versus anxiety is still considered, well, I don't want to admit to that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to admit to, because we're so pressured as the society to be happy. And I'm not even sure, like for me, happy is a relative term. You can't know happiness unless you've known sadness. And so you need both in order to be human. So having a little situational depression, I'd hate to say, oh, let's normalize and it's okay to be depressed all the time, but to realize that it's a part of being human and it's a human condition that we all have together. I think a lot of the problem in the black community as well is there aren't a lot of black therapists or it's hard. Like you don't necessarily want to go to some white therapist to talk about your problems. They may not understand culturally where you're coming from. And I think that's a lot of the sort of barrier to entry into going into therapy as well for the African-American community. I mean, it's getting better. There are websites and things that you can go to find therapists that are more like you. But it, it is, it's not the easiest thing. It's no, not and I, I get that. And I want to make sure everyone listening really understands how valid that is. Because as a woman, I look for a female gynecologist. Mm-hmm. And I have to say also that as looking for a therapist, except with my most recent experience, I did look for actively for a woman. And I actively look for a woman my age or older. And and because I was looking for bridges and it isn't that I, for me, it isn't that I'm an ageist and I don't believe young people could help me, or it isn't that I don't think a man could help me, but I'm looking to sit in a room and quite frankly, for my money's worth, I don't want to have to spend a month getting somebody up to speed. There's a lot of shorthand I can use with a woman around my age Mm -hmm. and of a similar cultural background that I'm going to be able to shorthand things. And let's get to the problem really fast. I want to be fixed. I am American after all. Let's do this quickly. It's the same idea. 
you know, the truth is I even looking for my last psychologist, I really did ask questions like, have you lived outside California? Because for me, I didn't want to have a therapist who spent their whole life. Like I was born in LA, raised in LA. I went to school in LA and now I'm here in LA. Like I was like, we're, you are not going to understand me. It's going to be a harder. And of course, sure he could, but I was like, I just want to shorthand it. I want you to get me so we can fix what my issues are. And so we can really concentrate on my issues. And so of course it makes sense that any person of color would want to at least have the choice of seeing a therapist or a doctor who is a person of color. It it makes it a safe, you don't have to be under the white gaze. Yeah. You can be your authentic self and not worry about having a cultural bias or weird kind of miscommunication and worry about bringing that into the room where all of a sudden then it doesn't feel safe. Yeah. And I think that's, I do think that's really important. Do you think though that at some point, some of the wellness industry that's focusing on this, like you said earlier in our conversation that the wellness industry actually wants, like it, it wants to create the sickness so they can stay alive in, in, in yeah. the marketplace. Like, of course, yoga is going to be helpful. And of course, meditation is helpful. These things do help. But if it's going to create shame or it's going to make spending more time in your head, like worrying about whether you're doing the right thing or whether you're doing the wrong thing, it's going to end up doing more damage. Yeah. I saw an article about how yoga is marketed a lot of the times as a weight loss thing and completely discounting the spiritual aspect and the body restorative aspect. And it just... Yeah, and, and and again, when you're marketing weight loss, you are mostly marketing it to those white women who want to stay thin all the time. I, I don't know. It's it's one of those like icky things. It's like the it's like those the waist trainers and the detox teas and the all this fake stuff to make you lose weight. And w- one of the things that I would really love is for us to normalize normal bodies. Just because you you don't have to, everybody doesn't have to work out, but you do need to move your body. Everybody doesn't have to like diet, but everybody needs to eat well, uh, healthy. And and when I say healthy, it's very relatively like just eat to fuel your body in a way that fuels your body. And if it help, if you're happy eating a bag of chips while watching TV, then do that because that makes you happy. And isn't that really what we're supposed to be about? And so I, I feel like the wellness industry adds all of this additional pressure to the, to white women. And then when a black woman scrolls across this, and be, because we, we live in this Eurocentric society where we have to have the straight hair and the skinny body and the small waist and the, it, it's an additional pressure. Do you think that icons like Beyonce and Serena Williams are changing that because so many white women worship Beyonce and Serena Williams? Yeah, definitely they are changing that because look at the Kardashians. They are examples of that. They're trying to emulate these women's lives. That makes me really sad though because even though... 
the Kardashians are definitely very savvy at running businesses. Yes. The thing is that they're not, the reason I said Beyonce and Serena Williams is that they're actually adding to society and not just being I know celebrities but, for being celebrities. I know what you're saying, but the majority of the people, the, the influence, the level of influence, I feel like sometimes the Kardashians have this level of influence that's huge. And you can tell that their level of influence is Beyonce and Serena and JLo, because look at how they're trying to manipulate their bodies and faces. Look at the men that they marry. There is a positive thing happening, but I just don't, I, I, I feel like that the bigger influence are the, the Taylor Swift's and what's that other one? Gwyneth Paltrow and all these like skinny blonde Ooh, right? Yeah, women that they, they have the wider influence. And so when you're scrolling on Instagram, the sponsored posts are all there. That kind of crap. Do you think that this will be interesting where in the next season we're going to have younger people on to join our conversation to talk about this? Because I'm curious to see whether this is only through our lens, Mm. only because I know that's true for me. I And I love Goop, by the way, but I also have my ideal of beauty is tall, thin, not straight hair, but definitely tall and thin. But I noticed that my students generally don't seem to run mostly most of those students really tend to have a much more body positive image um, across color um, across race Mm -hmm. and that feels a lot healthier and while I do think it might be good to eat chips processed food is probably never that good for you and when I see all my students like living on hot Cheetos I do feel like you're going to regret that one day, but, but I eat all my crap food in my twenties. It's fine. But I feel like once in a while, it's okay. The 80, 20 rule, 80, 20, like that's how I live my life. And at the moment I'm cutting, so I'm shouldn't even be talking about food, but it's, if I feel like sitting down and having a glass of wine and eating cheese popcorn like I did last night while watching Tracy Ellis Ross, then I just have to figure out how that's going to work in my food thing. No, I, I do. I do that's how I manage my food as well, especially when I'm lifting. Because if I'm lifting, then I'm feeling strong. I'm going to have better decision making mm-hmm. throughout my week. And then there will be one part of my week or one part of my day where I know that Eric is smoking ribs or a pork shoulder. And I'm like, I'm going to sit with a lot of wine and that entire pork shoulder. And, <laughs> and that's great. Right. But I do think that the younger generation might have a better version. But even for me, I think Jennifer Lopez, who is our generation, mm-hmm. and I remember when she first came up as getting famous and everyone talked about her big ass. And I thought that was very hard, must have been very hard for her. But I was always really. I really love that she didn't lose weight because I'll tell you, Julia Roberts, if you look at Mystic Pizza, had a figure. Yeah. And And she whittled herself down to nothing. And Jennifer Aniston, first season of Friends, had a figure. She's whittled herself down to nothing. But that's Hollywood pressure. 
No, it's true, but that, but Beyonce's Hollywood pressure, but like these are uh, that no, but she just refused to bend. Yeah, like, the ideas, and I think that is an echo of the times, like where somebody's going to say, "No, screw you, I'm going to be me," and I really think Jennifer Lopez is one of the first that did it, and I'm sure she might say they labeled me a Latina. And I was able to get away with it where um, a white woman couldn't. This is what's, and I, and then she probably didn't even get roles because she wasn't thin enough or she wasn't white enough. There's that. Yeah, there's there's all of that. I, I think a lot of the reason why young people, I hate saying young people. I don't know why. It just makes me, because, you know, we're not old, but younger people are less inclined to follow these types of beauty um, ideals is partly because celebrity culture is dying. And so if you're not looking up to that skinny person, you're looking up to somebody that's more real, then obviously you're going to have a better image of who you want to be and who you are. I don't watch the Oscars. I, I know if you were styling somebody for the Emmys or the Oscars, I'm going to watch it or I'm going to look at the pages after because I do like fashion. But the truth is I don't watch the Emmys, even though my partner's nominated for an Emmy. Because it's self-congratulation, it's bullshit. And it really just elevates celebrity culture. I don't think it's somebody is not cool or smart because they're celebrity. But it's also people and TMZ and following them on Instagram and, and being so obsessed. I unfollowed everyone that doesn't have a message that I want to hear. You know what? The other thing is to tie this back in. Yes, to depression. Tie this back into to wellness and, and sort of depression is the idea that this is what for women helps create depression. Yes. Because when we're looking for models, right, or role, mo- role models, not mm-hmm. model models, when we're looking for role models and we're looking if it's coming through celebrity culture, if it's coming through media, we're looking for people who look like ourselves And then we're looking for cues of how to better ourselves. And the whole idea is like, if you're set up to fail or set up to feel bad about yourself, that is going to crush Mm -hmm. your own authentic code. And so I am not talking about if you're in grief and you're mourning something. I'm not talking about outside influences where there really is like, or a clinical depression, like those things come on. For different reasons. But when we talk yes. about like the way women start to lose self-esteem, which I do think plays a precursor into depression or anxiety because it plays into self-loathing. I, I think that when we think about celebrity culture, when we think about before, when we think about the black community, we think about the white gaze of the white wellness industry. I don't think that's helping. When we think about body shaming, mm-hmm. that's not helping. All of that kind of plays in to people feeling unwell when it might be that we're all a little bit better, or at least all a little bit better than we think we are. Knowing that the pandemic and the polarization that this country is feeling is really real right now. What are you doing to keep yourself at a decent equilibrium? I work out a lot. <laughs> okay. I haven't in a few days. I've and and it's really interesting because I 
in the beginning last week, I think, or the week before when I was talking to you and I, apparently I thought it may have been depression. Mm-hmm. Turns out I was actually sick. <laughs> when I went to the doctor, I said to her, I just haven't been feeling myself. And when I did this telemedicine thing, they told me maybe I was depressed and I, but I knew I was seeing you on Friday and she goes and she feels my glands and she's like, your glands are all swollen. Maybe you're coming down with something. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I wasn't depressed. Um, so I still haven't really worked out, but that's mostly because of heat and stuff. But I work out a lot and I read and I just keep myself active. I have never been clinically depressed. I know what clinical depression is because I have a, I had a husband who was manic depressive and paranoid schizophrenic. So I am very well aware of what living with mental illness is. Plus my mother was a social worker for the homeless mentally ill. So I am not one of those, I, I don't get down very often. And when I do, I might have a good cry. I might read and give myself a day. And I'm really good at that. I'm really good at being able to take care of myself in that way. But for the most part, I'm generally an okay person. I know that I can't look at social media anymore at certain accounts and see the things that bother me. I know I just need to keep scrolling. Right, And I know that I don't watch the news as much as I used to, which I guess is depressing because I kind of need to know what's happening, especially right now. I just have to like learn how to take care of myself. And that's one of the things that I do is I just got to put myself some distance with those things and distance with those people who make me feel icky or bad. Yeah, that's good advice. I have never been clinically depressed and I don't like saying I'm depressed, even if it is just feeling down because I know what that is for people. And I don't want to diminish that in any kind of way. Yeah, absolutely. What are you doing these days? Because I know that you have a lot of anxiety around what's happening and, and life is a little hard at the moment. And you have a lot on your plate, like I, being a professor and the Zoom. And I just feel like it's, what are you doing to make yourself feel better? I have a pattern. It's not a healthy (laughs) pattern. Right now, I just figured out my, in doing all the things that I don't have any time to be sad right now. I have an 84 hour work week right now, doing everything I say that I'm going to do. Clearly not setting myself up for success. So I'm working on how to better balance my time, my life. But What I do is I tend to paint or I'll collage. I find that working with my hands, um, any kind of anxiety or depression that I'm having about the world, it's not the clinical depression. It is that low grade depression or just the anxiety of seeing how on edge everyone seems to be and how rude people are being to one another right now. I'm very sensitive to that. So I find that doing collage or I I just painted an old door that I had picked up at a Habitat Restore and I painted a mural on it. And so that was fun. And just, again, out of my head, in my hands, working. I tend to read science fiction or fantasy when I'm depressed, like rather than real books in the sense of any kind of literary book, if the character is compelling, but maybe not sympathetic, I'm like, oh God, I hate this person. Close. (laughs) Next book. Like I'll read it at a different time, but like right now I just want to read things that are fun and light Mm -hmm. and aren't getting me to think about 
things. And or I was reading a lot of World War II immigrant fiction earlier in the summer because even that was a different world and it was enough for me to do things. But I'm finding reading contemporary fiction, like fiction set in contemporary times, a little bit difficult right now. I was watching a lot of shows, but I found that was starting to become a hiding behavior rather than a restorative behavior. And I think that's really important for us as humans to know like what's hiding behavior that's going to contribute that might immediately feel like it's helping you. So like people say alcohol is a depressive, so you can drink it. It might help in the moment, but it's actually in the end going to make you feel worse, not better. And so I was starting to realize my relationship to Netflix and Amazon Prime were hiding behaviors, not restorative behaviors. So I deleted them from my iPad. I'm not saying I'm not going to watch shows, but now they're attached to my game console, attached to my television. So if I want to watch a show, I have to go sit down. I have to turn on the game console, turn on the TV, Mm. set myself up and really want to do it. So it'll be restorative, but I'm not hiding from the world in a show. And then I lift weights because I, I don't find any kind of cardio remotely fun at all. So I'm... Because it's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of it for me right now. And I'm just being really, I'm really trying to be as good to myself as possible. I do feel great when I'm writing or I'm collaborating. I'm working on this really great project with the artist, Alan Joseph Marks. And I really find that collaborating with him every time we have a meeting I feel amazing. Like working on his project, it it's always makes me feel good. And I start teaching tomorrow. So I'm very wow. eager to see my class because performance actually gets me out of my head. So the performance of making them have the best learning experience they can have. Oh yeah. I'll be happy. Yeah. That's another thing that I'm doing that's making me so happy these days. I've gotten so into the Formula One. Yeah, I started listening into these different podcasts and like I downloaded the app and like, oh my God. So of course, I think though I'm hiding in it, but that's okay. I'm a little happy to yeah. uh, to, to pay attention to this and which I find hilarious in retrospect because I don't drive, but I find- <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, just so getting into it. I, I've always loved it, but now I'm like obsessed. I want to know the rules. I want to know what that flag is. But- Learning something new or going deeper into something you, I actually think anyone would say that helps with anxiety, that helps with depression. And I'm not, again, not the clinical kind. We're just mm-hmm. talking about the general social depression and anxiety so many of us are feeling right now. But I think that's a great, and now we're going to have to do a, like a bonus episode about Formula One. You're going to have to teach me and we're going to maybe <laughs> we'll put it on video and you can show me a race and I'll learn to care. So, oh. <laughs> you would like it is actually so fascinating and there's only one black driver and he is becoming so political with with the with formula one trying to get them to become more inclusive really that's yeah, and, that's fascinating oh, and about time yeah. you know yeah. And he's very interesting, but they're all a bunch of characters. They're all a bunch of characters. And there's a new Netflix series around it. Well, it's not new, but it's on the second season called Drive to Survive. Okay. Hysterical. These guys are such characters. It's a bit of a, like a highbrow kind of activity. Okay. What is the difference between Formula One and NASCAR? The cars. Okay. Yeah. Form, um, NASCAR is like a, a, a and also... 
in Formula One, they can all build, like the car shape is generally the same and the engine's generally the same, but they all build, they're all different. Do you know what I mean? Whereas, and so that's why some cars are faster than the others. Whereas NASCAR, it's all really the same car. So it's all about the driver. Okay. All right. Now I'm a little curious. I'll go check this out. All right. I will see you later, Lenya. Bye. Have a good day. Join us next week for our first bonus episode on red wine and tarot. We share our favorite wines and decks. We pull cards for the show and for each other. And you think it's not about race? Just listen to how Alex and I once again discover how race permeates every aspect of our society. Find us at womenbridgingthegap.com and anywhere you listen to podcasts.